Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to the New Books Network Gender Studies Podcast. My name is Taylor Fox-Smith, and I'm thrilled to introduce Professor of Political Science, Kathleen Dolan, author of When Does Gender Matter? Welcome back to the New Books Network Gender Studies Podcast. My name is Taylor Fox-Smith, and I'm thrilled to introduce Professor of Political Science, Kathleen Dolan, author of When Does Gender Matter? Women, Candidates, and Gender Stereotypes in American Elections. Saturated with century-old questions of sexism, gender stereotypes, playing the gender card, and the gender voting gap, the 2016 presidential election was also the first contest of its kind. Professor Dolan's book was a must-read at its publication in 2014 and has now become a crucial starting point for citizens, scholars, and politicians alike, as we all seek to understand the gendered psyche in the dialectic relationship between voters and candidates. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. It's so exciting to speak with you. I was hoping if, first and foremost, you could give us a small introduction to your academic journey, and possibly how that led to the idea for When Does Gender Matter? How did that emerge for you? Sure. Uh, Well, for really most of my career, I have been focused on some aspect of gender within political science. Uh, My dissertation was about um, the political socialization process of children inside um, female-headed households. Um, You know, there were these old sort of dated stereotyped canards about how women weren't political enough to raise children who had interest in politics. And so I was always interested in a lot of, you know, what is the sort of stereotype thinking we had about men and women in the political space. Um, So throughout my career, I have studied women office holders and state legislators in the United States, um, 
people who are in Congress. Um, and and uh, one of my frames has generally been gender difference you know, between women and men. Um, and probably about 20 years ago, I started to become interested in the relationship that the public would have to women candidates. Um, back in 1992 in the United States, we had what we still call the Year of the Woman, um, in which we had a congressional election that focused much more on gendered issues than is usually the case in the United States. And we had a, a real uptick in the number of women elected to our U.S. Congress. Um, and, and so that got me sort of thinking about some of the whys. And so over the time, you know, in the last 20 years or so, I've been working on the the broad question of how the public evaluates women candidates and the circumstances under which women, or excuse me, voters will vote for women candidates versus men. Um, and the 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 book When Does Gender Matter is the the second book I've written on this topic. Um, and I always say that the first book I wrote, which was I think in 2004. Um, was an attempt to look at these questions of, of how the public evaluates women candidates using um, the best available data at the time, but really substandard data for trying to ask the questions we really wanted to ask. And so I, I like to think of When Does Gender Matter as the project that finally had the right kinds of data and the right tools to get at those questions in a, a much so I, I like to think of it as an improvement. Well, actually, this is probably a great platform for us to speak about that improvement and to possibly mm -hmm. elaborate on when does Gender Matter uses this really interesting two-wave panel study that you conducted. And this was conducted mm -hmm. during the 2010 elections. And I think for all listeners interested in political science, psychology, gender studies, as we try and look for ways to analyze that gendered psyche and how we analyze public evaluations of not only female candidates, but their male counterparts. I'm wondering if you could speak us through the methodology you used in the book and how this possibly bridged those data gaps, but also methodological gaps that you had seen in previous scholarship. Sure. Um, so I am somebody who for most of my career has conducted survey research as the primary um, research design tool that I use to gather data. There are, for people who study elections, you know, there are um, broad surveys that are done um, regularly, both here in the United States and, and around the world. Uh, here in the United States, we rely on something called the American National Election Study, which is a survey of a representative sample of the American public that's done every two years. The problem with a lot of existing data sets and surveys like the American National Election Study is they don't really focus on gender at all. Um, you know, it's, it's a subset of us who have cared about these sorts of issues until fairly recently. Um, and so one of the things that had sort of happened in the evolution of the study of women candidates and the public's evaluation of them and gender stereotypes was that researchers relied on experiments. And they relied on experiments in part because for a long time in the United States, the number of women candidates was pretty small. And they relied on experiments in part because they are relatively inexpensive and easy to conduct um, so that, you know, most any researcher could carry out an experiment without an extraordinary um, set of resources, you know, to fund that work. 
Um, and so if you look at much of the literature on gender stereotypes and, and the public's relationship to women candidates, you're going to see a lot of um, survey, or excuse me, not survey work, experimental work. You're going to see a lot of small samples, sometimes conducted on college campuses with university students or, you know, very small samples of the population. And what usually happens is the researcher would give somebody a, a speech from a campaign or a website and say, evaluate this candidate for us. Any experimental treatment would then be that they would manipulate the sex of the candidate, present a male candidate to half of the respondents and a female to the other half. And people who do experiments suggest that, you know, the isolation of all the attention on sex really gives us a sense of whether people have biases towards women. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that literature based on these experiments does show, or at least at a, at a low level and, and in some cases, a, a sort of a high level of antagonism. Uh, but a lot of these earlier works show that people have some sort of bias against women candidates. I have always been um, concerned about the, the significant limitations of experimental work. Experimental work is never meant to be generalizable to the world around us. It's really not meant for us to take conclusions and findings about how the real world works. And so I have always tried to rely on surveys because I believe that an experiment is such an artificial environment that you really can't use it to examine the dynamics of an election and the dynamics of the relationship between a voter and the candidates in his or her world. So for me, elections in the real world have so many moving parts and so many influences that simply focusing on the fact that a candidate is a woman or a man is insufficient to really learn anything at all. Because not only does a candidate have sex, but they have race and they have age and they have family status and they have professional experience and they have political background and they have a personality and mm -hmm. they have all of these different things that matter to whether a voter is drawn to that person or repelled by that person. Mm -hmm. So for me, the only way that we can really know whether or not voters look at women and men candidates as women and men first above everything else is to talk to voters who have been faced with the choice between a woman and a man candidate in a real-world setting. So what I was able to do in 2010 was the two-wave panel study that you describe. Um, I surveyed 3,200 uh, people in the United States. It's a representative sample of the United States. And those people lived in 29 different states. Wow. And they experienced elections for governor of their state, or a member of the House of Representatives or the Senate in our national legislature, and they experienced races in which a woman ran against a man. I had part of the sample that existed in a place that had what I call mixed-sex candidate races, mm -hmm. and then the other half of the sample lived in places where men were running against men because I wanted to be able to have something to compare the dynamics 
And so my hypothesis going into all of this is that the sex of the candidate was a really small influence on voters, because I believe that the evidence and the data suggest to us that all of the things that govern elections, political party, incumbency, the issues that are at play at a certain election, all of those things are much more important than whether the candidate is a woman or a man. So what I did in this project was in September of the election year in 2010, I surveyed all of the respondents, and I asked them a series of questions that were trying to gauge whether they held what I call abstract gender stereotypes, you know, beliefs that women are better at some things than men and that men are better at other things than women, beliefs about whether women are better at handling certain policy issues like education or child care and whether men are better suited for crime and the economy and things like that. Um, and so I was able to, to measure whether any individual had egalitarian attitudes about women and men's capacity or whether they had you know, sort of traditional stereotyped attitudes. And then two months later, I went back to the very same people and I asked them the same questions about the two candidates in their races. And so I was asking them specifically whether Taylor was better at economic issues in the campaign than John was, and all of these questions about policy and personality and you know campaign style and things like that. Um, and then I asked them for whom they voted. And so then I was able to take the measures of stereotypes that people may or may not have held, and I could use them in the analysis to you know, put them in as one potential influence, political party, incumbency, how well, you know, how much money was spent on the campaigns, the age of the voter, the sex of the voter, all different kind of voter characteristics. And I was able to, to put all of those variables together in a statistical analysis and determine whether or not people's gendered attitudes were important when they were choosing between a woman and a man candidate. And what I found is, overwhelmingly, the sex of the candidate does not matter. That voters will vote for the candidate of their political party, and that is the most important influence, bar none. And if the candidate of their party happens to be a woman, they will vote for her. It is irrelevant, really, that she is a woman. Um, So people don't cross into a different party to get away from a woman candidate. They also don't cross party lines to seek out a woman to vote for, right? In the United States, political party influence is the most important thing, and candidate sex is a much more distant uh, influence. So it's this really interesting space that your book kind of delves straight into, which is this gendered space between attitudes and action and looking at those Mm -hmm. in the election. And I think Mm -hmm. that what it does best of all as a reader is it really makes you understand that that gendered stereotype can impact not only actions in the ballot box, but also at the beginning of that electoral process through candidate emergence, but also through the shaping of campaigns. And that Mm -hmm. can differ between a male candidate and a female candidate, but also how those candidates perceive their electorates to hold these particular abstract gender stereotypes. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if we could look further into that candidate side of that nexus 
and try and look at how your book encourages the reader to think about the role of gender stereotypes in impacting a woman's decision to run. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on whether and why there is a gender, gender gap in candidate emergence, whether you found that female candidates ran a different race to their male counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. So, so there are several different things um, that in, in that. If we could come back later to the voter piece of it, that would be terrific. If not, I understand. Um, so, so let me focus on the candidate piece first and a couple of different things within that. Um, so my study does not look at candidate emergence proper. Um, the, you know, my study went into the field when the candidates had already emerged and I sampled the races that existed. But there, there is a, a, a growing literature on, as you refer to it, the gender gap in candidate emergence. And there's a lot of evidence that there is a very clear um, concern, uh, problem. The, those are value statements, right? Some, some people would think it's a problem that women run for office at, at such low numbers and, and much less often than do men. Others may, may not see that as a problem. But from the literature, it's very clear to us that women run at much lower levels uh, than do men, um, and that there appear to be a couple of reasons um, for that. Uh, the, the best work on this has been done by Jennifer Lawless and Richard Fox, two uh, political scientists here in the U.S., and they have done extensive survey work with people who are professional and have the credentials that we usually look to for political candidates. So, you know, people with college educations and working in fields like education and business and the law, um, you know, people who you would look at and say, certainly that's a reasonable candidate for office. And they've, they've surveyed thousands of these people, and they have found that women are much less likely to think about running for office than are men. Men are overwhelmingly more likely to think about it. And one of the things that drives women's decision-making, well, there are a couple of things, but one of the things that I think is most interesting and in some ways most troubling, all of the people in the surveys that, that Lawless and Fox did are equally competent and qualified you know, to run on a credentials basis. The women in their sample were much more likely to underestimate their own credentials for office. They did not see themselves as legitimate candidates. They did not see themselves as people who had the skills and credentials to run for office. And at the same time, the men in their survey overestimated their own positioning and their own abilities and their own credentials. And there's a, there's a, a literature in social psychology that, that matches this, right, that on many, many different dimensions, women are more likely to underestimate their, themselves and their capacity, and men overestimate themselves, right? We, we joke, there's a, you know, sort of a political joke in the United States that every male in our U.S. Senate looks at himself in the mirror every morning and sees a future president. Because men, right, psychologically tend to feel much more efficacious, much more empowered, much more confident in themselves. Women, it appears, 
have less of that confidence and surety in their own capacity. I feel like that's a, probably an interesting platform, if you wouldn't mind me interrupting, to actually no. step back to look at the political psychology of voters, because what's really stood mm-hmm. out to me here is a point that you make in your book is that these gender stereotypes held by voters may in fact be present but not determinative in their political behaviour. And what it seems here is that the gendered psyche of a candidate can actually be quite determinative in their political behaviour. I'm wondering if you could Mm -hmm. elaborate on that for the voter side of the nexus here and how determinative those gender stereotypes can be in the ballot box and possibly elaborate some more on how gender can play into considerations voters take into the ballot box um, keeping in mind how important you said partisanship is to the American voter and also the incumbency advantage and where you found them to sit in your research. Yes. So um, one of the things that I find is that while voters, some voters do still hold gender, political gender stereotypes about women candidates and about men candidates, uh, those stereotypes really seem to be on the wane. One of the things that we've seen in the United States, you can sort of track, if you go back to the 1990s in the United States when the number of women who were running for office and and winning office really started to increase, you can see that the presence of more women in political life has sort of occurred at the same time that we've seen a waning of gender stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And so I think at some level, right, the fact that women office holders and candidates are not unique anymore. They're, you know, they're not the unicorn anymore. Um, That, that has sort of taught people, you know, they've, they've had experience. They've seen women leaders. We've, we had a woman speaker of our U.S. House of Representatives. You know, we had a woman who was second in line to the presidency. We've had women governors and senators and, and now we've had a woman presidential candidate. So I think that people through the voters, through the experience of seeing more women in these positions, um, have come to see them as less women candidates and more candidates who happen to be women. So I think what we've seen is, you know, sort of a receding of the stereotypes people hold. Having said that, some people still do hold gender stereotypes, of course, Um, but at least in my work in 2010 and then again in 2014 when I I did a second uh, study, um, the stereotypes that people hold don't really shape their actions and their behaviors, their their vote choices. And and this goes in two directions, and I I think the second of these directions um, is interesting. So people who hold gender stereotypes you know, they they may they might believe that men are better positioned to deal with the economy than are women in a general abstract way. But if their party runs a woman candidate, they're going to vote for that woman anyway, right? So, the stereotypes, the the what some people see as the negative stereotypes, where that where people might devalue women in their capacities, um, they don't seem to hurt women in the voting booth. So women, you know, benefit by having their co-partisans vote for them. Women incumbents benefit from incumbency in the same way that men do. Um, so, so women really aren't paying a price at the ballot box. But what I think is also interesting is you can look at people who have a set of egalitarian attitudes about women. One of the things I do in the book is I ask people, do they think there should be more women in elected office? 
Would they like to see more women in elected office? If they have a choice between a woman and a man, would they choose a woman or a man? And so, you know, we can look at what you could think of as sort of positive gendered attitudes about women's role. And what I find is among people who believe there should be more women in office, want more women in office, are supportive of women candidates, when they're faced with a woman candidate running against a man, their behavior does not necessarily pull them toward the woman because they're being pulled by their political party. So it's, it's political party overall as the most important thing. And stereotypes, they don't hurt women, but they also don't override party to help women, right? If a, if a Democrat believes that there should be more women in office, but the woman running in her race for governor is a Republican, then that woman is not going to vote for the woman Republican candidate. Mm -hmm. So what I find more than anything else is that attitudes really just don't have much of a role in shaping people's vote choice behaviors. Great. I would love to transition to speak about the research you did into the campaign ads. And Mm -hmm. um, this happens towards the latter half of your book. And in addition to the survey data, you also looked at the presence of stereotypes um, in data of campaigns. So one particular thing that stood out to me was that there were particular issue differences in campaign ads. And you also looked at websites that candidates had popped up. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you could delve further into the findings you had there in terms of how campaigns are run and structured and if gender, in fact, does matter in that particular stage of an election. Sure. Um, So the work in in the book builds on some other work that I had done earlier. There are a couple of other projects I'd done in the past looking at, as you say, websites of candidates and comparing women and men. Um, In the book, I was able to also go farther and... I was able, there are 650 candidates who appear in the data set because the voters, you know, had them as their their candidates. Um, and we were able through the project to capture every television ad that all of these 650 candidates ran, um, which is a significant number of, of campaign ads. Um, and what we were interested in there is the idea that, again, some people expect women to behave in campaigns differently than men. And the question in campaigns in the United States is always, how does a woman candidate handle her sex? Does she hide it? Does she highlight it? Does she try to play to people's gender stereotypes by making sure she's focused on education and health care and child care and family issues and elder issues? Or does she try to show her independence and focus on international issues and economy and crime and strength kinds of issues? So, you know, people have different hypotheses about how women are going to behave. So what we find in in the book, in looking at the television ads and the websites, women and men don't behave differently from each other in a fundamental sense. Instead, partisans behave differently from each other. So Republicans campaign on a certain set of issues and from a certain perspective, and those are different than the way Democrats campaign and the issues that Democrats present. And so, again, it's political party. 
and women and men Democrats are very similar to each other. Women and men Republicans are very similar to each other. And the real differences are across party lines. So that women aren't running as women, right? And I'm making bunny ears there. Um, And men don't run as men, but instead they run as partisans. And really what matters most of all, and, and this makes perfect sense, is that candidates run on the things that are important right then in that election that's happening at that point. So in 2010 in the United States, the um, big issues were the um, what at that point was the new Affordable Care Act, or what many people refer to as Obamacare, the, the health care plan that President Obama and the Democrats in Congress passed, and then also still the lingering um, economic issues around the sort of, you know, almost collapse of the American economy and what we call the Great Recession. Um, so everybody's ads were dominated by focusing on health care, the economy, jobs, and things like that. It didn't matter if you were a Republican or a Democrat or a woman or a man. You would be negligent if you ran in 2010 and didn't talk about those issues. So... What is different is Republicans talked about those issues in one way and Democrats took a different perspective, but there was no gender difference really at all. This is really interesting for me to segue into talking about possibly looking at your book as a frame for understanding the 2016 presidential election. At the time of, I'm sure you asked this a lot at the moment. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck explaining that thing. <laughs> Well, at the time of writing uh, When Does Gender Matter, no woman major party candidate had ever run for president. And you do make a point of saying this in your introduction. So your book does make a concerted focus on Congress and governorships where women have made strides to gain representation, but also have that visibility, which, as you said, has a correlation with the waning of stereotypes. And these are electoral spaces where women actually do have a much greater chance of success and also where the pipeline to the presidency may begin. So I'm wondering if perhaps you could shed some light on the question that your book is named after. When does gender matter? And possibly when did gender matter in the 2016 election? Well, I think that the 2016 presidential election was a full employment program for anybody trying to explain the gender dynamics. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the problem, so part of the reason that we don't look at these issues in presidential elections is because, of course, until we had Hillary Clinton's campaign, we didn't have a campaign to study. But the, the second and larger problem in studying presidential elections is that they are really one-off affairs, right? I mean, every presidential election is a, a race in a particular moment in a nation's history between two particular political candidates. And so it is, in some ways, very difficult to draw lessons and conclusions based on the N of one, right, that we have. I argue, so there are a couple of different things that I can say. I mean, I have always argued that for the first woman candidate to be Hillary Clinton, actually made our challenge of trying to make explanations even harder because she was an N of one, certainly, but she was such a particular N of one because of her long history in 
public life in the United States, you know, being first lady, being a senator, then a presidential candidate in 08, and then again in 16. And, and she is one of those people for whom there is nobody without an opinion, right? I mean, every time she runs, it's a replay of the relatively hardened positions about her that already existed. Mm-hmm. So I don't think necessarily that the next woman who runs will be quite the it, it should that she won't be the same person literally but it also won't be the same set of dynamics um so i i think that that you know kind of complicates things even more the other thing is you know i can say that there are all sorts of ways in which gender mattered but i actually think that what the 2016 election told us more than anything else is that gender didn't matter because if you could find an example of a campaign that had more attention to salacious and negative and stereotyped gendered issues, mm-hmm. and yet that candidate still won, right? I mean, the, my biggest concern about the 2016 campaign is that people will take away the message that you can have, and I can say this because, right, this This sounds like a value statement, but if I'm being broadcast on the other side of the world, you can have a political candidate who was literally a reprobate with his behavior and his regard for women, Mm -hmm. and yet he was elected because people didn't care enough about respect for women or good behavior or not having a boor as president, and they voted for him anyway. So so for me, you know, the, the challenge and the difficulty is not I, – I don't believe – I mean, certainly there are voters someplace, and there are voters around the margins who didn't vote for Hillary Clinton because she's a woman, right? I, I absolutely will stipulate that, that in a nation of, you know, 120 million votes cast for president, of course there are some people who didn't vote for her because she was a woman. But that number is relatively small. And so I don't think her candidacy was damaged because she was a woman. I think in some ways his candidacy was not damaged enough because people didn't care enough about what you and I might think are centrally important issues of egalitarianism and basic human respect. Um, At the same time, and having said that, she won the popular vote. Right. I mean, she got almost three million more votes than he did. He is president because of the Electoral College and the way we count the votes. Um, So I always want people to remember that if we had a straight up, you know, national vote, she'd be president. So people chose her and they chose her affirmatively and they chose her by a decent margin. Um, What I find is the troubling gender dynamics, you know, the the notion like when when she when she ran in 2008 her campaign made sort of clear and conscious decisions to not focus on her being a woman they wanted kind of, they wanted to kind of downplay it they were clearly uncomfortable with her being the first woman in 2016 they were much more comfortable with her being a woman you know they there were all sorts of you know sort of ties to the symbolic nature, you know, the, the, she wore white all the time because it was the color of the suffragists, yes. you know, that she was a grandmother was not hidden, you know, there were those sorts of, of sort of kind of top-level things. Um, so they were, 
they were clearly more comfortable in 2016 with her being a woman. But when 2016 started, we would have been having a conversation like, oh, you know, will they focus on the fact that she's a grandmother now, or will they focus on this or that? I mean, we never in the world could have imagined a presidential campaign where we were talking about a candidate grabbing a woman's pussy, right? And so that campaign went so sideways in terms of the gender dynamics, and yet for some people it didn't matter. And so for me, the the sort of conversation in the United States about how the gender issues regarding Donald Trump, on one hand, some number of people said, this makes him disqualified. You know, this is beneath the pale. And other people said, eh, you know, boys will be boys. And so to me, that's the interesting gender dynamic from the election is that we still have real tensions between the way people expect boys and girls and men and women to behave in in interpersonal relationships and the sort of sexualized nature of those dynamics. Um, So I actually think that the more sort of broadly social issues and the social conversation about gender that came out of that election were more interesting and more important than the political So my next question would then possibly be, how do we keep the conversation of gender in politics alive? Are there particular forums that you'd recommend listeners pay attention to? Is it the job of citizens, scholars? How can we keep this conversation alive in a time where I think it's probably reaching its most important time? Well, you know, one of the things, again, that that I'm seeing here in the United States that I think is interesting, you know, after the presidential election was over, Um, You know, obviously about half of the country was very excited and half of the country was in deep despair. Um, And there has been, at least at this point, I'm concerned that it won't be sustained, but at least at this point there seems to be an awakening and sort of an activism Mm -hmm. around these issues that matter to many people, both women and men. Um, So, you know, we had all of the marches in the United States on the day after the inauguration, and there has been a lot of sort of local level activism around the nation in support of organizations like Planned Parenthood and, you know, kind of women's issues. And and the number of women who have reached out to organizations that train women candidates has been significantly increased as well. And so at least right now, there are some early signs that for people who care about these issues, this election made them say, holy crap, we cannot be complacent anymore, and you know we we didn't do enough in the fall, and now we have to do that moving forward. My concern is, of course, that people will tire and people will revert back to some complacency, mm-hmm. um, but we have to see. I myself, as as an academic, I am not an advocate necessarily for political side, you know, my own work, I I don't pursue the work I do to, you know, bolster the side of an argument or a political position. You know, I I am much more of an academic, you know, from the the perspective of knowledge, but I I try to keep things in a very non-biased manner. Um, You know, some academics are different on that score. My work will always be on gendered issues. Um, So I do think that there's, you know, an important role for work 
that continues to show the reality of women's place in politics and the reality of the, the world that they face. And if we can sort of highlight for women who might want to run for office the ways in which they can do it, the support that exists, you know, the true dynamics. Um, you know, uh, going back to Lawless and Fox's work, one of the things they also found in their survey was that women believe that if they ran for office, it would be this terrible, gender-soaked bloodbath of, you know, get home, get back to the kitchen, you silly woman. Um, and there's no evidence of that. You know, I mean, people just have these ideas in their mind that because they think about what Hillary Clinton endured and they're like, oh, I don't want that. Um, but, you know, sort of getting the, the, the actual sort of reality out so that people see what it's like for women who run and that when they run, they win. Mm-hmm. Um, that hopefully can help, you know, spur other women on in the future. Um, so I, I think it's something that has to happen on multiple fronts. And then I think at this point we're going to have to see at least if the energy here in the United States is sustainable. So what's next for you? What's your next big research project we can look forward to? Well, um, the the research from the book was in twenty was on the election of twenty ten. I did a smaller survey in um, twenty fourteen, and right now what I'm working on is a paper that one of the things that I was curious about. You know, we know that women in the United States are dramatically underrepresented in elected office, um, and so I was interested in whether or not the public had positioned why that was. And so I'm looking at a project right I'm working on a project right now that looks at whether people blame individual women for women's underrepresentation, you know, like that that women aren't good enough, that they don't have the experience, that they don't have the capacity or the drive or the ambition, that sort of thing, versus a structural explanation that says that women are, you know, underrepresented in office because the system is still biased against them or there's discrimination or they haven't had equal opportunities, Um, you know, just to sort of get a sense of what the average person would assume is the explanation for women's reality. And then the, yeah, well, you know, we'll see. And then the other thing that I I really want to do, um, you know, as, as I found in the book, political party matters, you know, to, to almost everything. Um, the, the one question people always ask me is, okay, that's fine. So if that is the case, then what happens within political parties, right? If you've got a Democratic woman candidate and a, a Democratic man candidate, right, if the party is still the same, yes. do voters treat candidates differently? Um, and that's a perfectly legitimate and fair question. And so what I would like to try to do for 2018 is to seek funding to do a project like I did in the book, except to do it in primary elections when the political parties here in the United States are choosing their nominees for office. So that would be sort of the next test of the gender dynamics, right? If we can hold party constant, is there, you know, different treatment, different reaction, different evaluation of the women and the men inside political parties? Um, that would take an enormous amount of money to do and to do well, just mm-hmm. like the book took an enormous amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I'm able to secure the funding to do that, that that's my sort of sort of short to medium term goal. You know, maybe it would be in 2018 or maybe it would have to be in 2022. Um, but over the next two or three, four years, trying to seek the funding 
to do that next step because that really is I think the next important step. Fantastic. Well, Kathleen, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for sharing your work and ideas. It's such food for thought in an interesting political climate where perhaps gender doesn't matter as much as it should. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. It's been very fun. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.